Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. My name is James Hickson. And I'm Trey Lawson. And you are joining us this week for... Garapalooza! 2021. Or 1974, depending on how you look at it. That's right, Trey, because this week we have two issues by the late departed... By the dearly beloved, departed, even. beloved, yeah, I would say beloved, especially on this podcast, Steve yeah. Gerber. Um, we have Man Thing number seven from July 1974, and Marvel Spotlight number sixteen, featuring the Son of Satan, also from 1970, July 1974. And that's right. And also, these books are closing out the month of July. So we're, we're sort of yep. finishing up another month. Yeah, we're, we're wrapping up July 1974. And next next episode will be on August 1974. That's right. But before we start talking about Marvel Horror Comics, we should probably take a few minutes to, uh, as is our want, spend some time on the hottest segment in comics podcasting. You know it. You love it. James, what segment are we talking about? It's Agatha all along. No, sorry, my mistake. It's actually Hellstrom Watch. Yeah, so looking at Marvel movie news, first thing, and this is maybe not all that surprising, but Kevin Feige says that Deadpool is basically going to be the exception to the rule. That it is the only franchise that is actually being aimed for an R rating. Everything else, including the other horror stuff like Blade, is aiming for a PG-13. That's not that surprising. No, no. And it's not that hard to do a PG-13 Blade story. No. Honestly. No, especially what... what, what, He's more action than horror. With what is considered okay in PG-13 nowadays, no. Yeah. Exactly. The only thing they could run afoul of is sometimes the MPAA gets real particular about how much blood you see on screen. Mm. And so with a vampire story, that can be an issue. Okay. But but other than that, I don't see why it would be a problem with any of the other stuff. Yeah. Um, and, of course, and, of course, anything that goes direct to streaming doesn't have to be rated by the MPAA, you know? like. True. It does mean we probably won't get a blood rave scene. Uh, right. <laughs> Right? We got Well, I remember when the, the first Hellboy movie came out, Guillermo del Toro talked about how the reason so many of the monsters bled colors other than red was them trying to get around MPAA restrictions on showing red blood. And that happens a lot. Like, for example, um, Evil Dead 2. Exactly. Yeah, all of the sort of black bile and greens and blues and those colors all happen because for some reason the MPAA specifically looks for the color red. Right, and also because Sam Raimi got hit so hard, especially in Britain, um, with Evil Dead being one of those video yeah. nasties. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even uh, Army of Darkness, like he was contractually obligated to deliver an R rating on that one and still had to cut a bunch of stuff out. Right. But more about Sam Raimi later. Right, yeah. He will be coming up again in this. In addition to the the Deadpool rating news, uh, oh, we have our first trailer for Hulu's MODOK starring Patton Oswalt. This is famously the last survivor of the various animated Marvel shows that Hulu announced all at once a while back and then promptly canceled most of. The last survivor of any of the Hulu Marvel shows, including our own yeah. Dear Departed Hellstrom Watch. I mean, I say Dear you Departed. Mean, you mean Hellstrom. Oh, wait. Hellstrom Watch wasn't the name of the show? No, James. No. And so, uh, yeah, so it, it's it's animated. Uh, it's got kind of a, a stop-motion-y, almost robot chicken vibe as far as the look of it. Yeah, we, we watched it just before we started recording, and it definitely getting that robot chicken vibe. But in, in terms of, of tone and style, um, James, I, I think you, you brought up the, the Harley Quinn animated series, which I think is probably accurate. It, it's yeah. fairly fairly violent and, and, and gruesome, but in a way that's played for laughs. Yep. You've got this kind of mix of like super villain over the topness, but combined with like mundane office type stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it'll be interesting. It, it, it definitely. They've said they're going for a sitcom kind of flavor with it. And, and one thing that the trailer doesn't give any indication of is we know that at least some of the series is about Modoc having like a traditional like American nuclear family with a wife and kids and stuff. And we don't see any of that in the trailer. No. We'll see. I, I don't expect this to run for more than a season. I think I think they're putting it out specifically because it got made, and therefore, like, why not put it out? Yeah, especially with something animated like this. You know, a lot of production goes into things ahead of time before they started canceling yeah. things left and right. So Right. So, so I, I would be shocked if this goes for more than this one season, but who knows? It looks cute. The, it looks funny. M- Marvel might decide they like it, and they like having something a little more grown-up running on something other than Disney+. Plus. Which, you know, they keep on promising. They, they keep on hinting there's going to be, like, an adult level for Disney+. Plus. Well, you know, internationally, they introduced Star, mm-hmm. which is their uh, sort of all-encompassing streaming brand. It's in Disney+, Plus, but it's a separate section. And it's where they're putting all of the, like... R-rated and TV mature rated stuff that in the U.S. would go onto Hulu. Yeah. And so for now, they've been sort of splitting the difference between Disney Plus and Hulu, but I feel like it's only a matter of time before they introduce something inside of Disney Plus, maybe like blocked off with parental controls or something um, that gives you access to like, I don't know, the Aliens movies and stuff. Or Deadpool. Sure, exactly. But anyway, we've also got a little bit of Spider-Man 3 stuff, starting with some title shenanigans, because this got a lot of buzz very quickly over recent days. In quick succession, Tom Holland, Zendaya, and I am blanking on the actor's name, but the guy who plays Ned Leeds, all posted Instagram images with different fake titles for Spider-Man 3. And it was, it was like, I, I think Holland's was uh, Spider-Man Phone Home. <laughs> the, the Ned Leeds guy was Spider-Man Homewrecker. Oh. 
And then uh, Zendaya had one that was Spider-Man Home Slice. Ah. Uh, and then, after all of that, uh, the, there was a, a video that got posted to the official Spider-Man Twitter with all three of the actors leaving the director's office complaining about how they had been given fake titles. Uh, because, and, and they put the blame on, on Tom Holland because... He spoils everything. Yeah. And as they walk away, the camera zooms in on a whiteboard, which has Spider-Man No Way Home. Yep. Which, I mean, promises all kinds of interesting things, including, uh, I've seen all kinds of theories on this one. I've seen, you know, it's like Peter's on the run as a fugitive. I've seen Peter is lost in multiple dimensions. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting, if, if you look at the... Uh, the whiteboard itself. Uh, some someone took a screen grab of it, of course uh, it from the video, and there, there, there's a lot to take in. There's a lot of like other like joke titles that were suggested and crossed out. So like uh, home run, far from home. That one has an X on it and says we did this already. Yep. Welcome home is crossed out. No place like home. Copyright issue. from home is crossed out. Uh, <laughs> please never again. <laughs> home sweet home. Close to home, zooming home, stay at home. That one says hard pass. Webcamming. That one says keep it PG. It's uh, home in the title. Although uh, I know several people who would pay for a Tom Holland webcam. <laughs> uh, homeschooled. Aunt May says no. <laughs> but in addition to all of the sort of joke titles surrounding the official title, the other thing that people have noticed is. There's a whole bunch of hexagons drawn all over the whiteboard. Ooh. And, and you know, we'll, we'll get to this, but there's been a whole lot of talk about hexagons and hexes lately in the MCU. Just, just, a, just a wee bit. Just a, just a tiny, itty-bitty bit. So, so that, that's interesting. And if you haven't watched the video, it, it's cute. It's short, but it, it's cute. Yeah, which is really uh, interesting... You know, we don't actually have a real trailer for this movie yet, or even a teaser, nah. and it comes out in December. That, that's true. Yeah. And I, I have a feeling they're going to be working up to the wire on finishing effects shots and stuff. Wow. <laughs> well, because production got delayed on everything, you know? So, you know, it, it kind of throws everything off. Yeah. And that that's the case for a lot of the Marvel movies. For example, um, Shang-Chi, it's apparently coming out... This summer, and we yeah no there, there's already like images of merchandising and stuff for it yeah like like toys and things but we've not seen a single second of footage no trailers yeah. or anything. not even any stills no uh, I saw a partial picture of Shang Chi in costume on the box of a Lego set that's coming out and that's it wow not probably not the first way they want you to see their their product right. So, And then, f- last thing on Spider-Man news is, as of Spider-Man 3, Tom Holland's contract is up. But... But... He has been vocal in saying he very much likes playing the character. Yeah, he wants to come back. And also, and this was news to me, he says that Sony and Marvel have a long-term agreement on the character. Which is great. Like, Which, he basically says that if, if he is hired to come back... There will not be any of the like problems with who's in charge of the production like there was last time. That is that's good. That's real good because oh my god, I yeah. don't need that stress again. Right, right. 
So shifting gears away from Spider-Man. Kinda. Bruce Campbell, who I am a huge fan of. I'm a huge fan of his chin. Yeah, he has a very classic chin. Yeah. Very, very, very comic book aesthetic, that chin is. But, but Bruce Campbell is on Twitter. And boy, does he know his way around a non-disclosure agreement. Because what he tweeted on February 27th is a, a picture of, uh, of London with the caption, Boy, it was a blast working in a certain city with a certain director on a certain movie with a certain actor. It sure was. <laughs> and, and for those who are not aware, uh, Sam Raimi is currently filming Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness in London right now. Oh, that's that that's a really well done get around the non-disclosure agreement. Yeah, yeah, he's a master. <laughs> so don't have much more to say about that one. I just, I, I think most of us at least hoped that Bruce Campbell would have a, a cameo since Sam Raimi is directing. But that's about as close to confirmation as I think we'll get until the movie comes out. Yeah, but hey, that we got that much is impressive considering how secretive Disney is most of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of Marvel movies that we've not seen much about yet, despite having relatively soon release dates, Chloe Zhao, the director of The Eternals, who just won a Golden Globe, by the way, last night, oh. as we record this, oh, what, uh, for, for Best Director. What what she direct? Uh, for Nomadland. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Chloe Zhao says that uh, Marvel allowed, uh, basically took a big risk with her vision of, of how to do the movie, that they basically gave her a lot of control to make the movie her way, even when that sort of wasn't the way Marvel would typically do it. Hmm. Um, like well, that's unusual for Marvel. <laughs> lots, of, lots of shooting on location with wide-angle lenses, mm-hmm. um, which creates very beautiful shots, but can it, it affects the way that you do the visual effects later. Mm. Um, and... And apparently, and one of the things Nomadland has been very much praised for is its cinematography, is how like beautiful its aesthetic is. And she uh, she says she filmed about ninety percent of Eternals using the same camera and setup that was used for Nomadland. Interesting. Uh, and like I said, we have not seen really anything of this movie aside from some set photos. Um, but at this point, I have a feeling Marvel will wait to release a trailer until they can know whether or not to put Academy Award-winning director at the front of it. Okay, Because that now that sense. she has the Golden Globe, she's probably a front-runner for the Academy Award. And Marvel would like to be able to brag about that in a trailer. Oh, no, that definitely makes sense. Definitely, definitely makes sense. So they're probably waiting till after award season for the first trailer. Even though this movie comes out in November. Wow, November! My God! This is so different from the way we've marketed movies in the past. Where, yeah. where it's like, you know... Well, no Hall H, no Comic-Con. No Hall H, no Comic-Con. But even, like, before Hall H was a thing, do you remember the 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 um, the New Year's Eve teaser for Godzilla? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was a year before the movie came out. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, Godzilla knocks the shit out of the Times Square ball. Yeah. But, like, we used to get huge lead time of things, especially Marvel stuff. And now it just yeah. seems like... And a lot of it, I think, is because of shifting release dates and, and stuff like that, you know? And also, I wonder if, I wonder if part of it is just 
Marvel has become such a known quantity, they don't feel like they have to market it as much, you know? I think it's both. I think it's I think it's Marvel Marvel is the brand now. And so you just tell people it's Marvel and they will come see it. And we will get into more slavery, but I think WandaVision kind of proves that. Where mm-hmm. people were like, Well, we'll get there in a second. But like I think you're right there. But also again, like they don't want to have a date in a trailer that they can't actually commit to. Mm-hmm. Because that that's an artifact. So they want to be like until they have a firm, committed set in stone thing I think that we're going to start being a lot closer time between these trailers and these movies coming out yeah yeah and that's probably as good a place as any to segue into uh, talking a little bit about the last couple of episodes of WandaVision because as right. as, uh, as as we record this there have been two episodes since since our last installment so so there's a lot to talk about <laughs> And if you haven't watched either of those episodes yet, this is your warning. Right. Uh, we will be talking about spoilers. Yep. Although, honestly, so. by the time you hear this, you'll have seen the finale of WandaVision. So. Right. It will all be over. You could watch it all at once like a movie. <laughs> I, which I probably will. <laughs> <laughs> Just, like, marathon it. But, yeah, we're going to close that spoiler door. So, who's been messing up everything? <laughs> it was Agatha all along. Yay! Oh, that's <laughs> it has been like 2 weeks and that song is still stuck in my head. Yep. Yep. That no, I mean, the sure surefire way to win me over as a fan is to do something in the style of the Munsters. <laughs> Even though the Adam Family is a superior sitcom. You know, in retrospect, yes. But as a kid, I liked the Munster. Okay. But, I was a, like I liked the Adams Family movies. Uh-huh. But I liked the Munsters like reruns. But besides the superficial, there's nothing abnormal about the Munsters. True. All all of that is aesthetic. The Adams Family is legit weird. <laughs> right. Right. I'm just saying. I, I think it was because I was such a big Universal Monsters fan as a kid. And so that they looked like Universal Monsters was like... Again, it was totally the, the aesthetic. It was the look. <laughs> but yeah, WandaVision, uh, episode 8 and 9... Uh, sorry, excuse me, 7 and 8 have yep. uh, come and gone for us. And man, there's a lot that's been revealed. Yep, yep. We are, we are heading toward... Well, we're, we're heading toward... I, 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 I almost said we're headed toward the end game, but... No, we're 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 still in the fallout of the end game. We have passed the end game, and we are heading right. for we don't know what. Uh, right. Agatha Harkness has been revealed as apparently the main villain of Wandavision. Ish. It's weird. Like so, she's not in control of everything either. Not entirely. No. And she has been. She's been manipulating things on the edges. Yes. And you could actually make the argument, and I've seen people who've done this. That Wanda is still the villain of WandaVision. I, I'm going to argue that Hayward is the villain of WandaVision. I mean, like, if we're just talking about stories, tropes, yes. He is, the, if you're... But here's the thing. Wanda is still mind-controlling over a thousand people. She is, yes. 
I would suggest that some version of this scenario, that she was partly put on this path by Hayward because of the way he behaved yes. in that flashback. That he bears some responsibility. I've actually seen people say that Hayward is intentionally um, prodding Wanda to bring oh, yeah. the vision back to life during that scene. That, that's the thing, is he... It, what we what we find out in the, the mid-credits tag of episode 8, he needed Wanda's power to re-energize the vision. Yeah. And that suggests he was trying to get her to use her powers around the vision. But I, I think... To be fair to Hayward, I don't think there's any way he could have envisioned her taking a whole town hostage. No. Unless some of these other theories I've seen, like, he's Mephisto or he's Ultron pan out. So I've heard heard those theories. I've, I've also, I think I suggested a while back, his last name indicates a connection to a family that was Hydra in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm -hmm. And, And there's already a connection between Hydra and Wanda. See, here's a question I have. The deed that was in Wanda's car, it Mm -hmm. seems like it wasn't there before she went into S.W.O.R.D. But then again, we don't know that because we didn't see her leave the car. We didn't see what was in the car beforehand. So she could have just been like... But she seems surprised to see it. Yes, she seems surprised to see it. So I'm wondering who the heck put that in there. Like, if, if there had been a scene where it's like, you know... Well, Hayward's like, well, you can't have vision, but here are his personal effects. Mm-hmm. And that was in there. That would make sense. But right. there's a mystery surrounding why she went to Westview now, because where the heck did that envelope come from? Right. Who put her on the path toward that town? Yes. And and we still do not have an answer to the original inciting mystery, which is... Who is the witness protection person that Jimmy Woo is trying to find? True. Where I've heard all kinds of theories there. Right. But, right. but, that, that, it, but that is something that, that the show itself has not come back around to. You know, some people are like, oh, it's just a throwaway line. It's just something to get Jimmy Woo there. But I, I think something we've learned here, there are no throwaway lines. Typically, no. No. Except for freaking engineers. Um. <laughs> <sighs> uh, I, I will say that I, I can't help but laugh a little bit at casting Evan Peters and then making him the fake Pietro. Fake Pietro. Like, that just seems yeah. like a meta-commentary. That seems like a meta-commentary on Fox, that Fox yes. was always the fake Marvel Universe. Yep, yep. And I, and I still feel like there's something going on with Pietro. I think... He, he's... He's either so. So I think the suggestion was possession or mind control or something. Yes, but but I, I think we still have questions about who that character really is that could maybe become something. I think he is still very possibly Nicholas Scratch, um, mm-hmm. Agatha's son, and I also think yep. he, he is very likely also Senior Scratchy, the bunny. Yes, the bunny. yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I I do think if. That doesn't be the case. The casting of Evan Peters was just too mess with us. Sure. Which, I mean, bravo. Well done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you had everybody going insane for like a week. And it was worth it just to see him in the classic Quicksilver costume running around at super speed. And interacting with Wanda. Yes, yeah. and the kids. Yeah. It's it's a lot of fun because, I mean, let's be honest. Everybody enjoys that version of Pietro. You know, say what you will about the X-Men movies as a whole... Uh, I think a lot of people really enjoy that version of Pietro. 
and mm-hmm. seeing him interact with the Scarlet Witch makes the character seem a little bit more whole, even if it's yeah. a, still a manufactured interaction. Well, and, and he was a character who never really got his due in the MCU, because in a in a different version of sort of giving the finger to Fox, they killed him off in his first appearance just to prove they didn't need him. Yeah. You know? Like, the, the Age of Ultron, the... the like Pietro Prime, as I guess we could call him, um, yeah. got killed off almost instantly, even though both companies had a legit claim to using him. Yeah, although apparently, like there were a bunch of restrictions over what Marvel could do with him, as opposed to what Fox could do with him. Like mm. they weren't allowed to use the name Quicksilver. They weren't allowed to show his classic costume. Of course, they weren't allowed to call him a mutant. Right. But we still have a few mysteries in Wandavision, of course. One yes. of one of the ones that we've had for a while got cleared up and that it is not, you know, Vision's dead body being puppeted around by Wanda. Right. He is a spontaneous creation generated through hex magic. Yep. Through through uh, chaos magic. Also, we now have an explanation, like a, a sort of canonical explanation for the title Scarlet Witch. Yep. As being a practitioner of chaos magic. Yep. Which... Which gets to my, and I'm not the only one who said this, it's all over the internet, but but uh, the the idea that all of the types of magic we've seen so far are color-coded to the same colors as the Infinity Stones. Yes. Um, and, and seem to indicate some difference in either source or, or effect. I can uh, see that. But again, it's worth noting that Wanda got her powers from the Mind Stone but her powers do not match the color of the Mind Stones powers. Did she, though? Because Agatha says she she used her powers as a child before she encountered the stone. Okay, and that's something we haven't talked about yet. We, we get the reveal here that Wanda had powers prior to her exposure to the Infinity Stone. Right. I think, I think it's not that the Infinity Stone gave her her powers. It's that her powers, b- being untrained... Her powers responded to threats. Yeah, and so, and so the the stone manifesting itself. We already know it had killed everyone else that walked into that yes, room. Yes, and she was told this. Right, her powers manifested in a way to protect her, which maybe mixed with the powers of the mind stone in some way. Like that, it could have had sort of a, an effect of of combining or or altering her powers. But her powers were already there. And it seems like it was going into that room that somehow amplified them. Yeah, which, of course, we also don't see how Pietro uh, gained his powers because, you know, he's not a witch as far as we know. So mm-hmm. if his powers kicked in, as, again, as a way to prevent his almost inevitable death from exposure to the Infinity Stone, that still suggests that big M word that's been dancing around this series. Yeah. Well, and and with with him with with Quicksilver, it could also be that could also be Wanda, you know, could be protecting Wanda. him too. Could be, but but I would I would like to think that maybe we're we're getting the first sort of suggestions of of, of mutation. Yeah. So we talked about the fact that you know a lot of people were disappointed that Reed Richards did not cameo in episode seven. Uh, yep. A lot of people speculating that he was going to be the big, be the big cameo there, and it's going to be John Krasinski. So there is still an excellent chance that uh, we are still waiting 
for a big cameo in WandaVision. Now, um, with the duplicate vision, some people have speculated it was Paul Bittany referencing the fact he wanted to work for himself, but I don't think Paul Bittany is that um, self-aggrandizing. There is still supposedly a big cameo coming in the show that is a actor that Paul Bittany has wanted to work with his entire life. And I've posted this on Twitter, and I've posted on TikTok, and everybody thinks I'm insane, but I think (laughs) the big cameo is going to be Dick Van Dyke. Which, it's possible. I don't think you're crazy. I think it's still the long shot uh, option, but I don't think it's crazy. I I feel like it was seeded in episode 8. Mm-hmm. With her, with, with that being her favorite sitcom, it, that being her favorite, and having that honored position in the wall, um, yeah, and that being that what she was watching when her parents died, um, I think, man, I think, I, th- I th- honestly, I think like Mephisto or somebody is going to show up, and the form he's going to take is going to be of Dick Van Dyke. Now, what'll be mm. interesting is if he is circa nineteen sixties Dick Van Dyke, which right. Marvel has the I mean, technology. You- you, you could do the Peter Cushing thing and cast a look-alike and CGI him to look like young Dick Van Dyke. Well, they did that with Luke Skywalker and Mandalorian. Yeah, yeah. So, and you have that ability there. And I think that would be freaking amazing! <laughs> I mean, I've, I've always been... Fair, like, the Dick Van Dyke show is my favorite sitcom of all time. I'm right there with Wanda. It, it, it is classic, I yes. mean... I grew up with that show. I've I've shown that show to my children. I I I mm, I want this, but I won't be disappointed if it's not the case. Because man, no, we've got no. a great show here. Yeah, and we are set at well. What we get in the reveal at the end of the episode is, and we touched on this with the the, the sort of sword branded version of Vision is. We, we've got John Byrne-era West Coast Avengers solid white vision. Yep. And... Which, for years, was the version of vision that I knew, not because I was a comics reader. Famously, as I have said, I, I did not read Avengers much as a kid. But what I did was I rented the Super Nintendo Avengers game a whole bunch. And in that one, it was, it was mostly based on West Coast. And so you had Captain America, Iron Man... Hawkeye and solid white vision with the yellow cape. Rented it a whole bunch as a kid. And so that was my only exposure to vision outside of like comic book encyclopedias. Yeah. Well, I've mentioned before I had the um the trading cards, the Tops trading cards. Mm-hmm. So that's how I knew who most people were in the Marvel universe. But yeah, yeah. I, I had um, some of those but mostly Spider-Man and X-Men. Yeah. I had the 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 Marvel universe as a whole, so I feel like I had a well-rounded education. <laughs> I mean, I didn't learn to read until the first grade, but gosh darn it, I knew who Captain America was. Yeah, um, one of the first written words that I could recognize was Superman. As rightly you should. (laughs) But, you know, something we referenced earlier, and I think we should come back to, is, you know, we've talked about how, how, what a good show we've gotten here. And and you talked about Mm -hmm. earlier Marvel as a brand. One of the interesting things the show is doing is it's bringing in so many people that don't usually do Marvel. Yeah, like yeah. it's bringing in so many people who are like, oh, I don't usually do those Marvel movies. They're just they're just action movies with funny costumes. That's not my thing. This is such a good little treatise on grief 
and the way it affects mm-hmm. us and the way we deal with it or don't deal with it as it might as it I, be in this case. I've seen several professional writers sharing the, the screen capture of the line, uh, what is grief but love persevering, yes. with the with their own comment of, damn it, why didn't I think of a line this good? Yes. And I've seen some people try to come for that line and try to attack it and say, oh, it's goofy, it's hokey. And those people can go die in a fire. No, it's perfect. It is beautiful. Like that? And it's perfect for for vision. Like Yes. Like, when I think of, like, the famous... When I think of famous comic book panels featuring vision, one of the first ones that comes to mind is vision crying. Yes. Even an android. Right. And, and, and that, that line is sort of the spoken... That line is sort of the spoken equivalent of that. Yes. Yeah. It's it's really good stuff. And, man, I am not ready for the ending I think we're going to get with this show. I feel like it's going to hurt, it is, is the thing. going to hurt. Even if it's a happy ending, I don't think it's going to be the happy ending, like, happy fairy tale ending. I think it's going to be... I don't... Things get a little bit better. And something's going to I don't think it's possible for it to be a happy ending for all of our protagonists. No, no. But anyway, speaking of endings, yeah. let's go ahead and end this segment, and we'll be right back with our coverage of... Man-Thing number seven. Yep, Man-Thing number seven, right after these messages. It's Citizen Kane Minute, hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a collection of special guests. Citizen Kane Minute will examine the greatest film of all time, five minutes at a time. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. When was the last time you flipped your lid, fainted onto a desk, or crashed through a window, went down a ladder headfirst, and burrowed into the ground all in fast motion? Well, now, Nick at Night will have you enjoying these activities again with Monster Mondays. Yes, strap yourself in for six back-to-back episodes of The Monsters. So straighten your tie and glasses and watch Monster Mondays, all block party summer long, here on Nick at Night. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our first issue for today is Man-Thing number seven, The Old Die Young. Cover date is July 1974. The writer is Steve Gerber, the artist and inker is Mike Plug, the letterer is John Costanza, and the colorist is Glennis Ween, and the editor, of course, is Roy Thomas. Early in the morning, Man-Thing shambles toward the F.A. Schist construction site on the edge of the swamp. Inside, Schist reveals that due to the energy crisis, he's canceling his plans to build an airport in the Everglades. As much as the oil shortage, however, Schist blames the Man-Thing for his failure and especially Wickham, the man he hired to kill the creature. Suddenly, Schist sees the Man-Thing, and angrily picks up a root from the ground and throws it at him, ranting about losing his chance at eternal youth. Schist and Wickham depart, and the Man-Thing shambles back into the swamp, only to be trapped suddenly in a net. In an instant, he's surrounded by Spanish conquistadors, but the more the Man-Thing struggles, the more entangled in the net he becomes. The conquistadors drag the Man-Thing away, but over time, the creature begins to ooze its way out of the net. The Spaniards panic and flee, and the Man-Thing pursues them. Meanwhile, in Citrusville, Florida, Richard Rory has gotten a job working the graveyard shift at the local radio station. 
His celebration is cut short, however, when Ruth reveals she's going home to St. Louis to finish school, and Ayla will be leaving town with the carnival tomorrow, mo- tomorrow evening. They walk by a cafe, and the scene shifts from the suddenly bitter and lonely Richard Rory to F.A. Schist explaining to Wickham his desire to seek out the mythical Fountain of Youth. Back in the swamp, the Conquistadors have stopped to rest, only to be attacked by the Man-Thing. Sensing their fear, he grabs one of the Spaniards, incinerating him instantly. The others continue running, trying to reach a place they call La Hacienda, with the Man-Thing close behind. Suddenly, exhausted, the men collapse, and by the time the Man-Thing catches up to them, they have aged into crumbling skeletons. Man-Thing notices the entrance to a fortress just beyond their bodies, and enters. A man appears inside, and, blaming Man-Thing for the death of the Conquistadors, opens fire. Realizing the creature is unfazed, he concludes that Man-Thing must be an evil demon who must be destroyed. Man-Thing continues into the fortress, and comes to a central courtyard with a rainbow fountain at the center. Just then, the man returns with more Conquistador reinforcements. They attack, but only manage to make Man-Thing angrier. Desperate, one of the women of the fortress throws some of the rainbow water onto the creature, inflicting horrible pain. The creature crawls back toward the life-sustaining swamp. Just outside the fortress, Schist and Wickham arrive in a swamp buggy and try to run down the injured Man-Thing. The Man-Thing raises its arms, revealing a human hand. And as Wickham tries to talk sense into his boss, Schist accelerates to ramming speed. Ramming speed! <laughs> this this was a fun one. It was a fun one. Um, you gotta love when he stories show up in the modern day because right? they don't belong here. Uh, you know, I it's one of those things where I, I got to that page and immediately started flipping back wondering if I had missed something somewhere. <laughs> Gerber's good at that. Right. <laughs> and, like, inexplicably, the the guy that seems to be in charge at the fortress is wearing more of, like, a contemporary, like, safari outfit. Right. Some, like, ke? And has a, like, he has a machete and looks like a submachine gun of some sort. Maybe an assault rifle? Yes. I'm also wondering why they turn to dust. So I'm thinking... They have to drink from the fountain regularly, mm. like every so every so often. Okay. And they took too long to get back. Okay, gotcha. Which is probably why they've never left that fortress. Yes. It's all around weird, and it's all around good. Let's talk about Schist for a minute. Apparently yeah. he had an ulterior motive to building the airport. Right, and this is the first we've seen of this. You know, like, he's never mentioned this before. It comes out of nowhere in that opening scene where he starts ranting about eternal youth. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a little bit convenient in, in that Gerber sort of way that just when Schist starts talking about eternal youth is when, like, the defenders of the Fountain of Youth show up in the swamp. Yes. But but I'll allow it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it kind of makes sense that, you know, you have a story set in Florida, the Fountain of Youth is going to show up at some point. Yeah, especially especially when we've already invoked so much other magic stuff. Exactly. It's a story set in Florida. Either the Fountain Youth or Crystal Meth is going to show up at some point. <laughs> but not both at the same time. Unless Crystal Meth is the Fountain of Youth. I'll be right back. <laughs> yep. 
As a disclaimer, we would like to point out that Christmas is dominant without their youth and will in fact lead to harmful <laughs> side effects. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. And this is the one where we get sued. <laughs> so, um, some bad things happened to Rory here. Yeah, Rory's life has taken a turn. Yes. But that is actually consistent with Rory's life. It is. It is. And also, I wonder if on some level, Gerber maybe was thinking that his supporting cast was getting a little too big. Mm. Because, as noted in the letters page, Jennifer Kale has not been forgotten. No. Um, the, the letters page promises we'll be seeing more of her. Which, uh, we might be seeing her in Hellstrom, but more to that later. Right, yeah. Well, yes, I've got a note about that, too. Um, it's it's not an exceptional issue, really. No, but but it, it's... Gerber on Man-Thing, at this point, is kind of like our, our Tomb of Dracula team. You know? Like, even, even a standard issue is going to be better than a lot of other stuff we read. Yes. I mean, I really appreciate... This sudden appearance of Keystores. I will state that again. Oh, it was it was great. <laughs> and and there are some really fun moments that so like I think this is the first time we've seen someone like completely spontaneously combust from Man Thing grabbing them. Yeah, I was just looking at that panel, page seventeen. Yeah, like it's not just that like their arm burns or their face burns, their entire body erupted in flame. Yep. And I'm guessing it's because of the water from the fountain. That are they're just really afraid. That too. But but given what happens to Man Thing when the water is thrown on him, I'm I'm thinking there's some sort of interaction yeah, between the mystic powers animating him and the mystic powers of the fountain. Right. It's kind of like matter and antimatter mixing. Yeah. Well, because I mean, so Man Thing is is this sort of combination of science and dark magic, right? Yes. Uh, you want to hear something wild? Always. This story arc in Man-Thing is not the only appearance of La Hacienda. Is it the first appearance? Uh, this issue is the first appearance. So La Hacienda, where the Fountain of Youth is. Okay. Uh, I believe this is the first appearance of it. Um, okay. It is not the last. Wait, is this how they explain why Spider-Man's always in graduate school? <laughs> not quite. Not quite. Okay. But we, we return to this storyline... In 1980. Okay. In Savage She-Hulk. Wow. Ooh, okay. And we're going to have to cover that issue because Man-Thing's on the cover. Woohoo! <laughs> I mean, oh no, She-Hulk. <laughs> now, I don't think I've ever read this run. It's David Kraft writing Mike Vosberg on pencils. Uh. It's an interesting issue in that our supporting cast is almost non-present. Like, most of the issue is Man-Thing and the Conquistadors. Yeah. Well, we've seen that before, like, say, with Dracula, you know? where you, you get, you get the, the quick look-in with the supporting cast. And, to be fair, yeah. we just had a very supporting cast-heavy story with the dead clown. We did. I, I guess it's, it's interesting to me because Man-Thing is usually not entirely present because he doesn't have dialogue, you know? Like, like what, mm-hmm. what the result of that is is lots and lots of caption narration. Mm-hmm. Which is fine because the art is really good. Oh, yeah. But, but it makes for a different story. Like, you know, Schist gets, let's see, like two pages at the beginning and then another, say, call it a page in the middle. 
and then a page or so at the end. Like, that's what, like, three or four pages of, of F.A. Schist? Yes. Richard Rory gets, like, one and a half pages, you know? Yes. Like, that's 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 a fairly small amount of, of the comic that is taken up with characters who can speak. Yes. Also, the solution of throwing the rainbow fountain at him just kind of comes out of nowhere. So, I... It works for me because of the dialogue there. The the what the woman says is if the if the fountain of youth gives life, then maybe it will bring peace to the troubled soul of the creature. Yes, but this woman appears out of nowhere. Right. <laughs> There's no setup for her or anything like that. But I, it's fine, I suppose. It's really it really is a fun issue. Yeah. Yeah. And we got a great cliffhanger for next issue. Which is the gift of death is the the little next blurb at the bottom of the last page. That's a great title. The gift of death. It is. Great title. Um, especially with, with this one being the old die young. <laughs> so yeah, fun stuff. Indeed. But it's not the only Gerber book that we have for this episode. No, that's right. So let's go ahead and take another quick break. And we'll be right back with Marvel Spotlight number 16, 4,000 Holes in Forest Park, right after these messages. Between the golden age of Atlantis and the rise of recorded history, there were ages undreamed of. Hither came heroes and villains possessing swords and magic, whose deeds became tales and legends. I have come to relate these sagas. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Days of High Adventure, a new podcast discussing a variety of comics that fall into the fantasy or sword and sorcery genre. Available on most podcast services and Anchor FM. NASA Space Probe returns bearing the Killer Spores. And they've got Mark Harris, the man from Atlantis. They're loose in the world, and they control Mark's friends. And that's the most dangerous battle. The Man from Atlantis, an all-new movie thriller, Tuesday at 8, 7 Central and Mountain Time, followed by the best of police story on NBC. Welcome back to Ideas. Our next and last issue this episode is Marvel Spotlight number 16. 4,000 Holes in Forest Park. This issue wraps up our coverage of July 1974. Writer, just like our last issue, is Steve Gerber. Artist is Jim Mooney. Inker is Sal Trapani. Letterer is Charlotte Jeter. Colorist is Petra Goldberg. Editor is Roy Thomas. Damien Hellstrom, Dr. Catherine Reynolds, and student Byron Hyatt arrive at Forest Park to investigate the sudden appearance of 4,000 identical holes that have suddenly appeared in the park, creating rampant media speculation and drawing hundreds of cultists who believe the holes to be the harbingers of the apocalypse. The cultists turn on Hellstrom upon his arrival, forcing him to take on his demonic form, hoping to frighten the motley assemblage from the area. Yet the exact opposite occurs, and a fight ensues. The emotion of the battle helps to awaken Hellstrom's demonic persona, resulting in an errant bolt of hellfire 
going into one of the holes, setting off a chain reaction that sets all the holes alight. The fire from the holes rises into the air and coalesces into a colossal flaming serpent of legend. Comets. Realizing that he cannot fight Comets physically, Hellstrom returns with his companions to his apartment where he makes use of the greatest weapon of all, books. It is in one of these books that they learn that Comets does indeed appear as a harbinger of a coming of cataclysm, as it did before the fall of Atlantis centuries before. Realizing that Atlantis may hold the answer to defeating the fiery serpent, Hellstrom takes his companions on a surprise, and involuntary, trip back in time to find the Atlantean wizard, Zarana. So, not a lot happens in this issue, actually. No. It, it, it's mostly set up. Yes. Um, which which is sort of a recurring theme with this book. Yes. And yet, uh, yeah, I've got so much to say. <laughs> First off, let's start with this cover. If, you, yeah. if you're looking at the cover, guys, it's our cover image for the podcast this week. You've got a hooded dude in a robe riding a fiery serpent over a park while flying circles around Damon Hellstrom. And my first thought upon seeing this cover is, oh no, it's another dude in the hood doing fire in the sky. Just like that Ghost Rider issue. Yeah, yeah. this is sort of a recurring problem with the the horror books in general, is you get a lot of like hooded cultists in robes that are interchangeable. Yes. And but this, that's not quite where this issue goes. No, because... You know, I'm thinking, oh, great, another hooded dude in a robe, fighting a guy. Like, the, the the cover isn't an outright lie. Like, there are, like, weird, like, cultist-type people in it. And and there is a fiery serpent dragon thing in it. It's, yeah. it's just conflating things in a way that doesn't really match what happens in the story. No. I think a better cover might have been, like, the protesters um, turning on Hellstrom and having them surrounded or something like that. Or, mm-hmm. or maybe like, because like the the cultists you see in a story are way more interesting looking than dude in a robe. They look like rejects from Conan the Barbarian. Right. Like that's a, it, well, they look like they look like a Ren Fair put on a production of Shakespeare in the Park. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but you know that occurs to me. For people at Ren Fairs, very rarely dress like people in the Renaissance. Oh yeah, no, it, it's it's fairly ahistorical. It's it's medieval fairs. Yes, hundred percent. Yes, because like people in the Renaissance are all about, hey, I don't have to wear rags and shit. I've got money for fancy silks now from China. Absolutely, and, and like and the the Renaissance, especially by the time you get to the English Renaissance, like you you sort of have the beginnings of what would become a middle class. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> gonna, that's really gonna bother me now. So I I really I really like how inventive the opening splash page is. Yes. Like using the newspaper in the background as like your your title page, like your your title caption. You've got protest signs in the mix. Like it's a really clever splash. Although we now know this issue takes place in April 1974. Yes. <laughs> like um no in fact like the, just the the creativity of this splash is in the style of something you would see like a Will Eisner do. Yes. Although I will point out the idea of four thousand holes appearing in a park in St. Louis causing a media 
a national media uproar is just a wee bit ridiculous. Right. Well, and and a bunch of holes in a park isn't exactly a police situation, even. Like that's just a mole problem. No. Like even if it's like that, that, I mean, maybe gophers or like college students with a pole digger, because you could easily have four thousand right. identical holes. Like. Yes. I'm not sure what these people are getting so upset about. I'm not sure why they think this is the harbinger of the apocalypse, considering that most of these people have seen Galactus come to Earth within their own lifetimes. Right, right. Like, um, Galactus isn't even ten years ago at this point. And you can't say that this is outside the Marvel Universe, because Hellstrom debuted in Ghost Rider, and Ghost Rider has teamed up with Spider-Man. Exactly. So, like, we've got a six degrees of Kevin Bacon situation here. The only thing I can think is it was a really slow news day. Right. And we're in St. Louis, so they could very well just think that everyone in New York was really high the day that Galactus allegedly showed up. Oh, that, apparently that's what, like, the Bugle published the next day, that Galactus was some right. kind of mass right. hallucination. Right. So if you're in St. Louis, like, yeah, absolutely, you could buy that. So basically, this is setting the Midwest news cycle on fire. Any right, any right. any Sinclair media market. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, also, speaking of the holes, at the beginning of the issue, Shia the pol- <laughs> uh, at the beginning of the issue, the police say there's no pattern to the holes. Yet, when the holes are ignited, they make the shape of a serpent. I mean, would you call the shape of a serpent a pattern, Trey? Yes. <laughs> like, even if you don't see, like, the detail work of it, that's at least, like, a rough S shape, you know? Yeah, you, you, you kind of have a slight point there. Um, I mean, because basically what happens is it, it's the, the Hellstrom equivalent of that, that scene in, in the one of the Crow movies where, like, he... the 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 match or the light or whatever gets thrown on the ground and, like, the outline of the crow in flames, like, spreads across the ground. Like that, but with the shape of a serpent. Yeah. I, I think this... And then it comes to life. I think this speaks more to the incompetence of the St... the incompetence or the unimaginativeness of the St. Luke's Police Department. Right. Right. Uh, also, while we're on the subject of the serpent, the bottom of page 27 should be a two-page spread, and it should look way cooler. It should. It really should, because it seems kind of cramped there, whereas it today nowadays it would be a two-page spread. Nothing against Mooney, but he's just not really capturing the weird cosmicness of what's going on. No, no. Also, on the Flame Serpent, um, Hellstrom mentions this is the ancient... This is Comatus of Ancient Legend... Um, a quick right. Google search tells me that there is no Comatus of Ancient Legend. Unless by Ancient Legend you mean a uh, comic book that's not quite 50 years old yet. Right. This is the Ancient Legend of Steve Gerber's imagination. Yes. Which, I feel like there are so many actual mythical stories they could have pulled from for this. Mm-hmm. They didn't need to make up a, a fake one. Yeah, or, I mean, even just like... There are so many, even if you just wanted to take, like, a generic, like, demonic name. Like, there are whole lists of demon names and stuff like Paradise Lost that you could just pull from, you know? Yeah, yeah. That at this point in Marvel Comics had not been used yet. Because at, at, at this point, Mephisto doesn't even really exist. Now, the actual name, Comatus, seems to be come from the name Comet, to the name Comata, 
which actually means long-haired. It's where we get the, the word huh. comet from. Okay, yeah, because of the tail. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, as far as I can tell, the serpent does not have t- hair. No. But, I mean, it has this sort of long, like, flaming tail that I guess is like the tail of a comet. Kinda, yeah. I mean, besides poking holes in the ancient mystery, ancient prophecy trope, um, it's a fun story. Yeah, I have questions. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> for example, have we met Brian Hyatt before? Yes, we have. Okay. By- Byron or Byron? He, uh, it's, it's, I thought it was Brian, but I could be wrong. I, I think you're right. I think I misspelled it in my summary, but I think you're No, right. no, you're right. It's Byron. Byron, Byron. Hyatt. Okay. Byron Hyatt. So we have met him before? Yes. He tags along um, with the first investigation that that Hellstrom gets caught up in in St. Louis. Okay. So he was in that... Because you remember, Reynolds, Reynolds invites him to St. Louis. So he was in that thing with the ice demons. In the campus building or whatever? Yes. Yes. Okay. He wasn't like a major character, but he, he was introduced as a mutual acquaintance of Dr. Reynolds. Okay. Uh, he does not seem like Damon Hellstrom here. He, he no. He's kind of filling that role that that manager did in Ghost Rider for a while. Yeah, yeah. Kind of the, the antagonistic playing devil's advocate on everything. Yes, because he's secretly in love with the female lead. Right. Our listeners will remember him as the guy who tried to take Johnny Blaze's um, place on a stunt, dying okay. in a fireball of, of death. Um, for what it's worth... There aren't many appearances of, of Byron Hyatt. He he was in last issue. It looks like he's in the next issue, and then he has, like, one more appearance after that. Okay. Which maybe suggests to me that we might be moving away from St. Louis soon. Surprisingly not a character who's got stuck in the public imagination. Right, right. There'll be no Byron Hyatt for President 76 buttons. <laughs> yeah, not one of Gerber's most memorable uh, characters. Uh, no. Also, just... Uh, I have to ask, like, have we seen this, like, make the sign of the trident to signal the transformation thing that that Hellstrom does? If we have, it hasn't stuck enough in our imagination, in our memories to I don't remember it. it, and I feel like I would have remembered it, because it's a very, like, common Rider Henshin pose, kind of, or maybe even, like, Magical Girl transformation. Yes. I tried to... I'm trying to see if I can do it myself now with my fingers. <laughs> I think I did it. H- have I transformed into a demon, Trey? <laughs> um, no. Okay, but was I wearing this red shirt before? Because <laughs> I just noticed my shirt is red, and I can't remember if it was red before. <laughs> um, it's. But yeah, I-, I guess it's, to me, it's a waste that, like, there is a full page... Splash on seventeen of just Damon Hellstrom's giant head, instead of a full page or two page of the weird cosmic fire serpent. <laughs> Although I kind of like to imagine now that it is his giant head appearing over the crowd and being like, "Show me <laughs> right. what you've got." <laughs> yes, because I feel like that'd be a more exciting visual. Also. It just seems like Hellstrom's biggest superpower is being a huge jerk to everybody. Oh, yeah. He's a huge jerk to everybody he meets now. Like, And I guess I guess we could call that, like, the effect of his two personalities being merged together. Yes. 
but it also seems like that can that that merging is still pretty tenuous because partway through this fight he loses control and begins like actually killing people. Yes, but it it, it continues our our trend of like all of our Marvel horror main characters have this huge chip on their shoulder mm-hmm. and just are brusque with everyone. Like so far, right now, the most well-adjusted of our characters is Jack Russell. Absolutely, and that's saying something. He, yes, it really is because that that man has like between his family issues and his love life, like he's got a lot of problems. Yes, although I guess you could possibly say like Brother Voodoo is well adjusted. Right, and he's also the most superhero-y character that we've covered. Yes. Yeah. Because he, he is 100% Silver Age Doctor Strange. Oh, yeah. The only difference is, uh, please excuse the term, a palette swap. In a lot of ways. At this point, yes. Now, that, that gets better as time goes on. And, and, you know, like, shades of difference in his origin in terms of where he got his powers, how he got his powers, that sort of thing. But in terms of, like, the types of stories being told and his role in them, like, very much in the same ballpark as Ditko's Doctor Strange. Yeah, it's it's kind of disappointing they don't do more, say, like, the brother character. The fact that his brother haunts him. Right, and right. he can access his strength and, like, you know, do that whole... Uh, touch the, the possession thing. Yeah, touch the T-shaped birthmark thing. Call that, although I know it's actually a different character, but you know what I mean. <laughs> huh. Uh, uh, but, yeah, and I think that's something that later runs do more with in terms of his connection to the spirit world. Mm-hmm. Because that's really but, interesting. But yeah, yeah. But part of, and we talked about this when we covered the early Brother Voodoo stories. One of one of the few problems we had with it was that his powers were very loosely defined. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is also true of Hellstrom here. His powers are very loosely defined. <laughs> yeah, to the point where I can easily imagine him being able to turn into a giant head and yell at people. Absolutely. Well, I mean, again, he. He drew a circle of fire and opened a time portal. <laughs> he did. Like, that, that is straight up some Jack Kirby Thor type storytelling. Yeah, we kind of just brushed over that one, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> he, he opens up a time portal. That, yeah, With a ring of fire. Yeah, that's straight up Jack Kirby Thor and or Silver Age Superman stuff right there. Yep. I mean, I, I remember reading the early Thor stuff where he would, like, swing his hammer in a circle and, like, rip open a hole in reality. Well, I mean, that's what that's what Damon Hellstrom is. He's Thor with a different mythology behind him. Really is. Yeah, the, the, the trident is really just Mjolnir with Christian mythology mixed in. Yes. And uh, Brother Voodoo is Doctor Strange with uh, Caribbean mythology mixed in. Absolutely. And, and since, we, since we brought up the time travel thing, um, I, I guess we, we should just point out, people are probably aware of this, they probably figured it out on their own, but longtime listeners will remember the name Zared Na because the Kale family from the Man-Thing comic are part of a cult dedicated to protecting the tome of Zared Na. And I'm glad longtime listeners remember it because I completely forgotten about it. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I remembered only because when we were uh, not on show, but but in in other conversations when we were speculating about the mysterious book that Agatha Harkness has, 
I suggested a Dark Horse alternative to the Dark Hold was the Tome of Zaredna. Man, can you just imagine how crazy it would be if they start getting the Gerber stuff here with WandaVision? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, again, if we're doing multiverses, it makes sense to have a nexus of realities. It does. It does. A, a, a quick side trip to Florida, nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess there's always a chance to make Westview, New Jersey the, the I mean, nexus of realities. One of the one of the commercials in WandaVision was for a drug called Nexus. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. So, you know, not to go back to our WandaVision bullshit, but there we are. Uh, I mean, let's be honest, like every five minutes our minds go back to WandaVision, so. True, true. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is where this book leaves off, where, where this issue stops. Feels like a more interesting story than where it started. Oh, definitely. I'm like, oh, a flaming serpent in the air that doesn't do anything okay like going back to ancient atlantis specifically ancient marvel atlantis yeah that feels more like some of the trippy stuff we were getting in man thing back when he was in the adventures into fear book yeah like this could be part of sort of a fun zany spooky adventure so man thing is visiting old conquistadors and hellstrom is visiting Atlantis, Namor's great-grandpa. Yeah, I mean, we don't even really talk about the fact that this Atlantis has to be the same one as Namor's Atlantis, right? That's what I'm saying. This is specifically Marvel's Atlantis. Right. I know there's a whole thing with DC's Atlantis. That's It's a mess. It, it's, it didn't used to be. In the 90s, it was not a mess. Like, there was a consistent, like, history. Uh, well, because... Uh, uh, Peter David wrote, like, a whole book that was set in Atlantis's past that, that, like, told the the mythology of Atlantis in the DC universe, and and that's mostly broken now. But for, for a brief shining moment when Peter David was in charge of the Aquaman titles, <laughs> like, it was great. <laughs> I know that's a favorite of yours. I mean, you've based your whole look off of it. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not willing to give up my, uh, my right hand, though. Oh, don't worry. It won't be voluntary. <laughs> but overall, this issue pleasantly surprised me. Yeah, it, it for for a Hellstrom book, it's pretty good. Yeah, and I have to believe that is the effect of Steve Gerber. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I think part of it is that it finishes strong. Yeah, I think if we had spent the whole issue with the four thousand holes in the ground and and the not very interesting design of the serpent, yeah, like that would have been a letdown. But but that on page 31, Damon Hellstrom just nopes right out of that story by ripping a hole in reality and falling into ancient Atlantis. <laughs> things, get, things get better. Yeah, and what it accomplishes, like I said earlier, being less of a superheroic story and more of a weird mystery story. Although, now I'm stuck wishing this was a crossover with Scooby-Doo. <laughs> you can imagine that, right? Scooby-Doo makes Damon Hellstrom. Right, right. Like Zoink Scoob! This Damon Hellstrom dude's an asshole! Yes, exactly. Although, where we leave off, where, where this, this cuts off in the story, I, I can almost hear Roy Thomas being like, Ancient Atlantis, huh? Is there any way we can work Call the Conqueror into this? <laughs> Maybe. Well, because he recently... In, in terms of 1970s Marvel, around the time this book was coming out, 
Roy had established that Cull and Conan were part of the ancient history of the Marvel Universe. Yep. I guess they are again now? Yes, they are. Because Conan is canonically an Avenger. Yep. That's not ever going to come back to bite us at all. <laughs> Please see Rom. I think tonight. at this point, some of the earliest stories are public domain, so... Okay, that'll be fine then. Or if not, then they're close to being. I also, since we, we talked about it on the last issue, the, the blurb for the next issue is also very good. Next, sword against trident, sorcery versus soul fire, in the shadow of the serpent. Right, we're calling it soul fire, I guess, instead of hellfire, but... Well, because Ghost Rider has hellfire. Well... It's, it's all hellfire, Trey. It is, but I, I I think Son of Satan specifically derives from, like, human souls. The same way that his sister absorbs souls and feeds on souls. Soul food. But yeah, yeah, it was a surprisingly fun issue, and I can only chalk it up to Steve Gerber. It might be time to start wrapping up this episode of Tomb of Ideas. If you want to contact us, you can do so at our email it's tombofideas at gmail.com our twitter is at tombofideas our facebook is facebook.com slash tombofideas and we are proud members of the Cinepox podcasting group that's right that means that you can find our entire back catalog on cinepunks.com. That's cinepunks with an X. You'll find all of our episodes going all the way back to number one, in addition to great shows like Black Sun Dispatches, Cinema Smorgasbord, which recently put out an episode uh, for uh, The Howling as part of their uh, Dick Miller subseries. Uh, love The Howling, one of my favorite Ooh, werewolf movies. The second best werewolf movie from 1981. Watch your tongue. <laughs> so, I don't know if listeners are aware of this, but there there were three werewolf movies in 1981. Uh, there was An American Werewolf in London, The Howling, and Wolfen. And I have long held the opinion that The Howling is the best of the three. This is not a popular opinion, and I recognize this, but I will always, always give my support to The Howling as being the best werewolf movie of 1981. And I have only seen American Werewolf in London. <laughs> we, we can fix this. I have the Shout Factory release. Uh, I'm sure you do. But sometimes it's just more, more fun to mess with you about it. <laughs> anyway, Cinema Smorgasbord, Horror Business, Weird Obscure Possibly Unsafe, and lots of other great shows. Plus, Cinepunks has great articles on movies, TV, music, and other pop culture Check out Cinepunks.com. There's all kinds of cool stuff there. Yeah. And make sure to join us next episode where we'll be talking about Adventure into Fear, number 23, featuring Morbius, the living vampire, and Ghost Rider, number 7, featuring the Stuntmaster. That's right. But until next time, Tomb Believers, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Members, Excelsior! <laughs>
comments, 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 comments.